Welcome to the Word of Life AG podcast. What's your expectation when you come to church? Today, Pastor Tom shares the change that God wants to bring in your life through repentance so that true revival can start within the church. But first, if you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. That's wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. We're so glad you're getting caught up. So let's get right into today's message. Pastor Tom has titled, Revival Starts Within the Church. Good morning, Word of Life. I hope you're glad you made it to church this morning. I know I definitely am. To get started today, I want to get kicked off in um, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and follow along. If not, the words are going to be on the screen. So Mark chapter 6, starting verse 2. The next Sabbath, he, talking about Jesus, began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now, here's Jesus teaching in his hometown at the synagogue. And as a respected teacher, it's not necessarily unusual that he'd be there. But when it comes time for Jesus to perform some of the miracles and the ministry that he's a part of, and it, it all kind of comes to a stop, it doesn't happen the way that it has in other places. And so I guess kind of the question is, well, well Why? Why in Jesus' own hometown, why didn't he perform such miracles? And we just read that the people there were like, hold on, you're Jesus. We know you. We know your family. What's this whole Son of God thing? What's this whole Messiah thing? And so when Jesus invites people to come and receive prayer and come and receive healing, I have to think, even though it's not laid out explicitly in the text, I believe that the way that the Scriptures are written is that when Jesus invited people to come and receive from him, people didn't go. There are some people, if, if you watch preachers on TV, and if, if you watch a preacher on TV and they've got a great big gold throne on the stage, turn the channel for the love of all that's good and holy. But I, I've heard some of these preacher types that they'll say that the reason that the people didn't get the miracle in that moment is because their faith just wasn't quite enough. That they, they, had, they had some faith, but not quite enough. And because of that, Jesus withheld his goodness. And he withheld his blessings. And what I would say to you is I don't believe that's how the Scriptures read. What I believe is that people looked at Jesus and they just didn't think it was worth going to him for a miracle, so they stayed away. They had distance between themselves and the one who could have set them free. They could have received a miracle. They could have seen God do something amazing in that moment, but instead they decided, we're not going to go and let you pray for us. We're not going to go and be blessed by you. We're not going to go and be a part of this. And what this tells me, and the reason that I mention this scripture today, is that our expectations matter. What we expect from God matters. Our anticipation, how we approach something, it makes a difference. I would even go as far as to say that expectations shape the outcome. How do you turn up to church? What did you expect when you came into church this morning? Did you kind of come to church this morning and think, I really hope the worship team sings my favorite song? Did you think to yourself, I really hope Tom doesn't go on too long like he normally does? That was not a joke. Why are you laughing? 
What was your expectation of church today? Is your expectation that I'm going to come and I'm going to gather with other believers? And if I've had the worst week of my life, I'm going to come together and I'm going to be a part of God's people declaring how good He is and how worthy He is and how awesome He is and how uniquely worthy He is to be praised and how it is right and appropriate and logical that my trust is in Him. And I'm going to gather with other believers. And if I've had the worst week of my life, I'm going to feel lifted up. Or... Are we annoyed that the team didn't do our favorite song? Do we come today and hope that the message I'm going to share is from a Bible passage that you really, really like, and perhaps I'm going to share something that perhaps you haven't heard before, or what's your expectation? But is your expectation that you're going to come to church today and lives are going to be changed? Have you come to church today with the expectation and the anticipation that I'm not perfect, my life is not all in order, I have brokenness, I have shortcomings, I haven't got this all figured out? But maybe, just maybe, if I can hear something from the truth of the Scriptures, maybe I can start realigning some things in my life so that I can become more and more like the person God made me to be. And it's all about our expectations. One of the things they taught us in Bible college is that if you don't like the way the preacher's preaching, become a better listener. And I can tell you, I've stood up in some places, I've been in some youth ministries, I've, been, I've even sort of even spoken in high schools before, and you get up and you can tell there is not a single person there that wants to hear a thing you gotta say. And as soon as someone pipes up and says, oh, that's good, oh, it just lifts you up. So if ever you come to church on Sunday and I'm having an off day and you hate my sermon, my friend, be a better listener. Get on the edge of your seat. Say, come on, Tom, there's something good here. Come on, there's something here that we need to hear. Come on. And if we come with that expectation, it draws it out of what's going on. We don't just sit there as spectators, but we sit there as a participant, as we're a community of faith that has gathered, and together we're going to be challenged by the Word. As a community, as a gathering, as a togetherness, we're going to be encouraged by what God is doing. We're going to be encouraged by the truth of what the Scriptures have to say. We're going to come in. You may have had the best week of your life. I hope that you praise God like you could never imagine if that's you today. And if you came in and you have had the worst week of your life, I hope you came in and you praised God and you glorified Him and everybody leaves here with a spring in their step ready to go into whatever this coming week has for them. <laughs> Expectation. Expectation. It drives the outcome. I am uh, I'm not quite sure how I first came across this story, but there's a celebrity, I won't mention the name, um, so I just don't think it's helpful, but there's a celebrity um, who I didn't really care about the work that they did or the kind of stuff that they were a part of. It's not my thing, but when I heard that uh, they were a preacher and they left that to go do their thing, suddenly I became interested. And I came across a documentary on YouTube uh, yesterday. And so I spent some time and watched it with somewhat of an interest and fascination. And what was interesting about it, it was kind of a talking head documentary where um, they kind of got people that knew this person. They're all kind of talking about this and that and what it was like to work with them and what they were like as kids and all that stuff. You know the kind of thing, right? And so uh, all these people are talking about this individual. And one of them says that when they were finally done with church, when they shook off the shackles of religion, when they put that behind them, when they were finally free of this life of faith, then they were able to become all they were meant to be. The story goes on. And to quote the person, all that they were meant to be is someone who became an alcoholic, someone who became a drug addict, 
someone who had prostitutes calling the police, someone who completely obliterated their relationship. Ultimately, they had a quick rise to fame and then a very dramatic fall back down. And tragically, while under the influence, they died in a car crash. This is a terrible story. And I couldn't help but think about that initial response, that initial kind of thought process of this person finally was done with the horrible, awful, restrictive constraints of faith. They were finally done with it so they could finally fly free. And the ending of that story is just heartbreaking. And this is the deception that you and I are a part of in the world today. Is that freedom and hope and purpose and peace is not found in God, is not found in, in living a life of faith, but instead is just found in indulging ourselves. And we see it over and over. This is by no means an isolated story. You have your versions and I have mine. You've seen it in people's lives just like I have. But that's the lie. That is the veil that covers the eyes of many today. That experience is not my experience of coming to faith. My experience of coming to faith is not one of, of being restricted and held down and uh, finally wanting to get free from all this, you know, all that God would have me do and the way that God would have me live my life. That is not my experience. When I came to faith at 19 years old, my story isn't really that dramatic. I guess I was just a normal person, but I was going through life. I was drinking like there was no tomorrow. I was up to all sorts of crazy stuff in the party scene. And when I finally came to faith, I was like, now this is life. When I came to faith, I was like, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been hoping for. This is where purpose is found. I now have something I can hope for. I now have something I can live for. I'm okay that I'm not the hero in my own life story anymore. He is the hero of my life story. I'm not the author of my own story. He's the author of my story. And it's the best decision I have ever made. When I came to faith, I heard a new word, or I guess a word that I'd, I'd never heard in a faith context before, or describing, you know, never heard it talked about describing church or about religion, and it's the word revival. And I would start to hear about the word revival, and I've come to understand somewhat about what people mean in a church environment when they say the word revival. And we kind of looked at moments that have happened in the past where there's just been an outpouring of the Spirit of God, and there's just been an overwhelming response to the gospel where churches have just been flooded with people who are seeking answers. There have been seasons in history of uh, different places and times where it just appeared that the Lord has just moved in a powerful way and people have come to faith and there have been people who have been just abandoning the life of sin and running towards God and these revivals have sprung up and have always kind of lived with this idea that as a church we should be praying for revival that we want to see this move, that a revival in Baldwinsville would mean people from all around the community and all around the area just flooding into Bible-believing churches like Word of Life and just flooding to come and just meet their Savior. And I've always sort of lived with this idea as a believer that this is something we should pray for. And something important for you and I to grasp today is that revival starts within the church. Revival starts within the church. Revival doesn't begin out there. Uh, oftentimes as believers, we can consider revival and we can say that, well, yeah, revival is like the, the outsiders, people who don't know Jesus, people who've re previously rejected God. They're suddenly flooding our doors and filling our pews because they can't wait to hear the gospel. That, yeah, okay, that is revival, but that's not how it starts. Revival starts within the church. It's not something that begins out there and that we get caught up in. No, 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 it begins with us. And I want to just sort of walk through and just kind of flesh out this idea a little bit. And the first thing I would put to you is that revival starts with repentance. Revival starts with repentance. 
This is echoed in the life of Jesus, in the life of Jesus as we have it described to us in, in the Gospels that we have. There's a lot of letters in red. There's a lot of things that Jesus taught. But the first thing, the way how Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4, 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach. This is how Jesus chose to start his teaching ministry. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is how Jesus started. I have to believe there's something significant that he didn't start with something else and then hit on this later on. No, 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 this is how Jesus says, this is how we need to start this thing. As I'm beginning to teach the world about my kingdom, this is how we need to begin. This is day one stuff. Repent, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, what is it that repentance means? Repentance is a, a come to be somewhat of a loaded word. It can kind of come with a lot of hang-ups and a lot of guilt attached to it. And some people will use the word repent, and what they'll mean is you, you have to be sorry, but not just sorry, but really, really sorry. And if, if you're really, really sorry, then, then that's repentance. And, and that doesn't quite do it justice. The Greek word for repentance in the New Testament Greek is the word metanoia. And the word metanoia, it simply means to change your mind. And it really means to, to change your way of thinking, to understand things differently. Yes, there's a, an element of apology, an element of contrition to that, but it's about a change of thinking. It's about a change of understanding. It's about a change of perspective. It's a new way of thinking. It's changing your thinking. That's the biblical repentance. And the call to repentance has built in the promise of hope. Because repentance is a promise that you can go through life differently. Life doesn't have to look like this. And if you come to Jesus and you come with repentance and, and a desire to want to think differently and understand differently and a different set of values and a different set of priorities, then life doesn't have to stay like it is right now. Life can change. The call to repentance is a call to hope because it's a hope that today doesn't have to stay how it is. Today can look differently. This time next year, life can look very, very different than it looks right now. The call to repentance is built in the promise of hope. And even what we just read from Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. It's not distant. It's not remote. It's not unfindable. It's not hidden. The kingdom of God is near, is near. But for you to be a part of it, and I want you to be a part of it, is the message of Jesus that he wants us to be a part of this kingdom that he's establishing. But we can't get there thinking the way that we do, making sense of the world the way that we do, prioritizing things the way that we do. No, 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 that needs to change. And if you put me, Jesus, at the top, and if you put me in the middle, and you put me as your greatest priority, then you will come into this kingdom that you will want to be a part of. And this is indeed the message of Jesus. You're invited, but there's a need and a call to repent. The heart of repentance, it leads us on a quest for mercy. Once we realize we need to think differently, once we realize we need to make sense of the world differently, it leads us on this quest for mercy. And the second thing I'd put to you is the quest for mercy ends with Jesus. The quest for mercy ends with Jesus. 1 Peter 2.10, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Once you had no identity as your people, you were just floating through life. There was nothing about you that was noteworthy. You, you had no identity as a people, but now something changed. Now you are God's people. 
What made that change? What made the change from you're a people with no identity to now you are God's people? What made the difference? The difference was once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. The difference was the mercy of God. What defines us as God's people is his mercy. And what is his mercy? It's withholding the punishment that you and I deserve. It's showing forgiveness where we definitely don't deserve forgiveness. Once you had no identity as God's people, but now you are God's people. Once you receive no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. All this means that within the church, my friends, there is no room for pride. There is no room for pride within the church. There is not a single one of us that can say with a straight face that we have never needed the mercy of God. There is not a single one of us that can say with integrity that we don't need the mercy of God today. The church of Jesus Christ should be the most humble place in all of creation. Because every single one of us is here because we have come to the realization, we have come to the awareness, and we have come to the admittance that we need the mercy of God. We are broken, we are messed up, we want to repent and be done with our old way of life. And to get there, we need the mercy of God. How on earth there is room for pride within our churches is a mystery to me. Every single one of us is a mess that we need God to clean up. This verse from John 1.12, in, in the past few years, this verse has come to mean the world to me. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. The third thing I put to you today is the grace of God exceeds what's reasonable. The grace of God exceeds what's reasonable. The prodigal son, it's a very well-known story. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a chance you've heard this story before. But in the prodigal son, there's a father, he had two sons. The youngest one, it's always the youngest one. The youngest one decides, Dad, I don't want to live with you anymore. I don't want to live in your house anymore. I want your money. I don't want you. Can I get my share of the inheritance now? The father gives him his inheritance. The, father, uh, the son goes off, squanders the money. And he's absolutely blown the cash that dad's given him. And he's found himself living in a pig pen. And in the pig pen is this wonderful verse that comes to us, Luke 15, 17. While in the pig pen, after wasting the father's money, after rejecting the father completely, after saying, Dad, I want to live as if you were dead, it says, when he finally came to his senses. How many of you are glad that you finally came to your senses one day? When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. If you know the story, the story ends with the son going home, and he's ready to become a servant in the father's house. That's what he believes he needs. As he's come to his senses, he's looked at things and said, you know what, if I can get the mercy of my father, and if in his mercy he lets me come back and live in the servant quarters, like the shabby servant quarters, not in the house, not in the big house, in the servant quarters, then, oh my goodness, the mercy my father would have shown me. And the father does far much more than that. The father comes back and doesn't stick him on, you know, outside in the shed with the servants, but instead he reinstates him as a son. And this is the picture that Jesus chose to use to help us understand the forgiveness and the lavish grace of the Father is that I'm not just going to, you know, okay, well, I guess you say you're sorry. I guess I'll forgive you. No, no, no. It's I'm going to run and meet you and show you the love and appreciation and the delight that I have that you finally come home. That is the goodness and the grace of God. It far exceeds what is reasonable. It's almost as crazy 
as a kid coming home and saying, Dad, I crashed the car. And the dad saying, no worries, here's a new one. If you or I, if we didn't pay our mortgage, sooner or later, we'd end up in court. Now, if you can put yourself in that shoes, if you can imagine that situation where you haven't paid the mortgage for such a long time that you're finally in court to have to face up to what you've done, and as you're there, you walk in, and lo and behold, the person who's judged that day is the same person who's the president of the bank that you owed money to for the mortgage. And now you walk in, you're like, what chance do I have? The person that's there deciding your fate is the same person that you owe an insurmountable debt to. That's a scary place to be in. And yet, that same judge says, don't worry, I'm going to cover this for you. That's a picture of the grace and the forgiveness of God. We owe a debt we can't pay. And the person who holds the fate in our hands, he's the one that says, I love you so much. I don't want you to suffer the weight of this debt. I don't want you to live distant from me because you can't make up the difference anymore. I'll pay it for you. Come on, come home. When we come to our senses, we find out that approaching God is not approaching someone that's scary, that's ready to get vengeance upon us. But instead, we find a creator, we find a loving father who is ready to say, yes, you're distant from me. Yes, you have a debt to me that you cannot pay. And guess what, kid? I've covered it for you. Come home, take your place as a son and daughter once again. The need for the hope of repentance, the quest for mercy, the realization that the grace of God is even greater than I would have guessed, it all means that the gospel has never been more relevant than it is today. The gospel in the world that you and I live in, 21st century America in the Northeast, the gospel has never been more relevant. Now, if you didn't see it coming that I was going to be sharing this verse, you haven't been part of a church very long. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. Come to me all of you. Who are carrying too much. Come to me all of you whose life is weighing you down. Come to me, all of you who have got backache because you are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I will give you rest. Partner with me. Take my yoke upon you. Be in partnership with me. Be in lockstep with me. And I will teach you. I will teach you a different way because I'm humble and gentle at heart. The voices out there, the loudest voices in the world today, they're prideful. They're angry, not me. I'm humble and gentle at heart. And by partnering with me, by letting me teach you a different way, you will find rest for your souls. For my partnership is easy to bear. My yoke is easy. The burden, the responsibility, the call, the one that I give you is light. This verse is 
something I must have said this, I don't know how many times in the last few years. The reason it keeps coming back to me and the reason I keep finding it deeply moving is because this describes the world around us. The high school is a few hundred yards that way. I mean, some of us, not me, but some of us could probably throw a stone at there right now. The school's right there. If you go to the high school tomorrow afternoon, you'll see a lot of kids that are weary and a lot of kids that are carrying heavy burdens. The promise from Jesus that I will give you rest, rest for your soul, has never been more relevant. You go to SU tomorrow, Tuesday, whenever, you'll see a lot of college kids walking around SU that are carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, that are broken, that are hurt, that are confused, that are struggling to understand what their place is in the world. And to them, Jesus says exactly as he's been saying for the last 2,000 years, come to me. I'm going to teach you a different way, and I can give you rest for your soul. I can't make that promise. I can't promise people that I will give them rest for their soul. But Jesus can, and he makes good on his promises. And he has proven that he is true to his promises for thousands of years and millions and millions, possibly billions of people all over the world have found that he is true to his word. The fifth thing I would say to you is that the grace of God needs to be shared. The grace of God needs to be shared. Story in John 4, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'd likely remember this one, but Jesus is traveling and doing ministry in different towns, and he goes through Samaria, and he meets a woman who's at a well, and this woman's got a bad reputation, and she's got a bad reputation for good reason. And as Jesus is interacting with this lady, he starts saying some things that completely catch her off guard, and as she's listening, she realizes that, oh my goodness, you have the words of life, like you are the one I need to follow. I need more and more of what you're saying. And this lady has her life completely transformed, but the story doesn't stop there. This lady meets Jesus. Jesus changes her life. She then gets up and goes and starts talking to all the neighbors. In John 4, 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. This lady had had her life changed. She told others, and they found out for themselves. When God changes your life, when he starts moving, there is no way to keep it to yourself. This is when revival starts to be observable and difficult to ignore. It started, lives have been changed. People that are desperate for mercy are finding Jesus. And this is what we start to mean when we talk about revival, when the church, when the believers start to have their lives and their hearts transformed. We can't help keep it to ourselves. We can't keep it to ourselves. It has to get out. It has to spread. And this leads us to a responsibility. Desperate people need to know where to go. Desperate people need to know where to go. Remember the scriptures that we've read already today, that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not out there. It's not far. It's not distant. It's not remote. It's near. And we also read that now you are God's people. We read from John that he gave us the right to become children of God. 
We read from the prodigal son that when he finally came to his senses and he wanted to go home, we read that come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. We read from the villagers from John 4 that he is indeed the savior of the world. And here's another one for you, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These promises, these truths from the gospels, these are amazing promises of hope and life change. These are the answers that desperate people need. Romans 10, 13 again, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? A massive part of the church's responsibility is to send people. It's to send people. Because if we send people, then people are going to hear. Then people are going to know. Then people are going to believe. And then they're going to call on his name and they're going to be saved. A massive part of a church's responsibility is to send people. Whether it's sending people across the street, sending people into work, sending people into school, sending people across the globe. It's a responsibility to report what God has done. Revival, it starts with repentance. The quest for mercy, it ends with Jesus. The grace of God, it exceeds what's reasonable. The gospel has never been more relevant than it is today. The grace of God needs to be shared and desperate people need to know where to go. My friends, revival starts within the church and revival starts with repentance. Revival starts with you and I changing our expectations. So we expect that when we come to church on Sunday, I hope Tom's got something good to say. Do we turn up on Sunday and think, I really hope Luke, the American Paul McCartney, a nickname which he loves, hope Luke sings the songs I like. Or do we need to change our expectations of God? I am not perfect. I have not got this all figured out, but I'm confident that you love me. God, my week this week has been filled with mistakes, it's been filled with regrets, but Lord Almighty, I know that you are faithful to forgive all unrighteousness. Lord, this week has been a struggle. The last thing I want to do is get out of bed and put on a fake smile so that everyone at church thinks that everything's awesome. What's our expectation? Is it that we're going to gather here on a Sunday morning and the Lord's going to move in a powerful, unprecedented way? Is our expectation we're going to come to church on Sunday and we're going to see people's lives being transformed, that people who have no idea who God is are going to come and they're going to be filled with all kinds of good things and they're going to be filled with vision for what the future could be because they've met Jesus. What's our expectation? What's our expectation as we come to the Lord in prayer? Are we expecting, well, you know, I mean, I kind of know I'm a Christian, so Christians are supposed to pray, so I guess I will. Is our prayer life beginning and ending with dinner time? Or are we coming like, Lord, I believe you're gonna move in this generation. I'm done getting annoyed because I watched the news and I'm shaking my fist at the air about kids today. I'm done with it. Lord, I'm going to pray for them instead. I'm going to pray that God's going to move. What are you expecting in prayer? 
churches all across America and all across the world probably talk about revival and I believe it's become synonymous with God can you please bring everyone in so our church services can be bumping true revival begins with you and I saying Lord you, you've, take, you've taken a back seat when you should be up front in the driver's seat I'm sorry God I've, I've let you slip to second place I'm sorry God I haven't prioritized you God I read the Bible with reluctance I'm, I'm sorry that, that's not how I should approach your word Lord I come to you in prayer when I need something and never else I, I, I'm sorry Lord I, I don't care about the eternal well-being of my co-workers I'm, I'm sorry God I, I'm, I've become petty and slow to forgive I, I'm sorry God, I've got so wrapped up in the election that, my gosh, I've no idea what else is going on. I'm sorry. That's how revival starts. If we want revival, I believe we talk about it and we hear about it. I don't believe it's, God, come on, you're not doing your bit. Come on, let's go. I think it starts with us saying, okay, Lord, you haven't been you haven't been the hero of my story I want that to change God I've picked up some bad habits I, I, I want to be done God I've picked up some sinful and helpful toxic attitudes I, I want to be done I believe when the church gathers with a heart of prayer and a heart of humility and a heart of repentance that that is the jump start to revival because the Lord can work with a church like that if you want to stand with me, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go back into a time of worship. Lord, please take something from today, scriptures that have been read. Lord, use it to bring the right kind of challenge to us, the challenge to put you more and more central in our lives, the challenge to honor you more and more, the, to worship you with a, a greater level of passion. Lord, we want to see you move in this community. Lord, we love our neighbors. Lord, we love the people that make up this community. And we want to see them come to know you in a life-changing way. Lord, if there's someone here that needs to change and address their expectations of you and their expectations of being a part of a church and their expectations of a life of faith, Lord, I pray that you would bring that challenge. Lord, if there's someone here that, um, Lord, has something they need to repent from to change their way they think about something, Lord, let the challenge rest. And Lord, for those of us that need to be nudged into how we're being sent to go and share the good news of what you've done and to report on how you've made a difference in our lives, Lord, may that challenge hit home today. Lord, truly, we love you, we worship you, we honor you, we praise you, we glorify you. You and you alone are worthy of our trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everyone, let's worship together.